Hi, and thanks for listening to another audio podcast from Creekside Community Church, Narangba, Queensland. For more information and resources, please visit our website at www.creekside.org.au. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you and praise you for your word and your spirit. We thank you that together they form this teaching team which illuminate us and encourage us and support us in this whole thing called life and faith. And we thank you that we're able to be a part of that together in Jesus' name. Father, teach us today, we pray in your name. Amen. As Tim said earlier, we're beginning a whole series today called um, Stories That Disturb. Many of the things Jesus said disturbed the people, disturbed the people he talked to. They weren't just nice, frothy statements. They actually caused grief and provocation and disturbance to people. And he would often answer a question with a question. That's frustrating, right? When you ask a question, somebody answers with a question. Jesus would often do that. He'd, he'd uh, often challenge the comfort of people. People around him didn't always feel terrific. They sometimes felt ill at ease with some of the things uh, that he said. He said some puzzling things that he knew only some people would get and deliberately not everybody, which is a bit puzzling in itself as well. So we're doing this series during January. Why it's five is because there's actually five Sundays in January, otherwise it would be four. Um, but five series about you know, statements, that stories that disturb. And I'll guarantee you some things this month. I'll guarantee it will provoke you. I guarantee you will be provoked. I guarantee some of the things Jesus said will challenge you. I guarantee they will bother you and they'll certainly disturb you. But I guarantee also that they may also enlighten us. They might also um, open us up to what the Spirit of God is saying. They might encourage us. They might inspire us. So we're going to together plummet and explore some of those things that Jesus says, often in parables, but not always in parables, but primarily in some of the parables that he says that will provoke us. And I don't know about you, but as I read some of the scriptures and the one I'm going to read to you in a moment, no matter how many times I read that scripture, I still get challenged deeply by it. I'm going to read to you a scripture from, uh, from Matthew chapter 25. It's, it's a scripture you know very well. You've probably read a few times. And it's this. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will sit the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me, I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When do we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when do we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, and as much as you did it to me, to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. 
Then he will say to those on the left hand, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not take me in. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they'll also answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger and naked or sick or in prison did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to me, to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. How many people feel disturbed already? Just reading that scripture again, one you probably know very well and maybe you've heard it before and someone has spoken on it before, but it provokes a question. And the question is this, Christianity, is Christianity a way to life or a way of life? Just think of that for a moment. Is Christianity a way to life or a way of life? Well, it's always hard to get people to put their hands up in church, so I'm not going to try and do that. be embarrassing you. The answer is it's both. The answer is it's both as long as you get the sequence right as long as you get that sequence really important to understand that. Christian faith is a way to life that leads to a way of life. It's, it's a way to life in the person of Jesus that then leads to a way of life through the person of Jesus in our lives. And it's in that order. You can't live a good moral life and just think that's the way to life. You can't do that. No way of life leads you to the life Jesus gives, but you come to that life and then Jesus calls you to live a certain way, a certain direction. You come the way of life first and then express that in a way that's honouring to him and the way that he shows. And, you know, this thing called the way is really important. Jesus himself called himself the way. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And in fact, before the church was ever called the church, before the word Christian was ever used, the followers of Jesus were called the way. This faith we have is a way to life, life eternal, but then it's a way of life that we're meant to express the way to life that we've discovered. It's both. So we need to understand that as long as we understand the sequence well enough. And it's always important to see who the audience is in Jesus' stories. When Jesus is speaking, it's important to see who the audience is. Sometimes it's his disciples, his followers, his 12 or maybe 12 and a few others who are advocates for him, who are supporters of him, and sometimes he talks to them in, in, in the kind of things that he says. Sometimes it's the crowd who are more curious and interested and puzzling about who this person is. Sometimes he tells stories to the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, he, he says some pretty tough things to them. Well, look at some of those because he calls them hypocrites and whitewashed tombs and, and cups that are dirty on the inside but look pretty good on the outside. So he says some of those things, depends who he's talking to, that matters. And sometimes the stories are skewed to one or other of those groups or a couple of those groups. Sometimes it's to all who are there. So these stories that will... I think disturb us, are important to look at. And this time was a poignant time. Jesus, it's towards the end of his life. 
physical life on earth. And it's a point in time he spent some time around the temple teaching, speaking to those groups of people, crowds, um, Pharisees, disciples. And he's in and around the temple. And then it says he left the temple and went out to the Mount of Olives with his disciples. And he's sitting on the Mount of Olives. And I've been in that region. And you can actually see the temple from the Mount of Olives. You can, if you've been there, you know it. You can sit on the Mount of Olives and look. And he looks to the temple where he's just been and teaching. And he's got his closest people. This is his last hurrah with his disciples before that crazy last week. This is the last time he gets to sit with them in that space um, quietly before that last week goes crazy for him between adulation and crucifixion in the one week. This is the last time he gets to sit, it says, on the Mount of Olives with, with him. And the thing that the disciples are asking questions about is what will happen down the track? They've just started to get the message that he's going to leave them, that he's going away that you know, he, will, he will depart. And they're starting to get the message that he'll come back and be resurrected, but what happens after that? And so they ask him a whole bunch of questions about what will happen, and he starts to tell them some of the things that are going to happen in those, in those days to come. He says that, uh, you know, before I come again, the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world. He says, uh, you need to say that somewhere, somewhere on the line the sun will be dulled and the moon will be darkened and, and, and then you'll kind of get an idea that something's in the wind. But he does say in the same time, no one knows the hour of the day. No one can predict that. No one, if anyone ever tells you, I know Jesus is going to return on this day and this time, don't know where they get that from because no one knows the hour or the day. He talks to them about the story of the wise and foolish virgins, which is one of the statements we're going to look at the next couple of weeks. And he tells the story of the parable of the talents and asks the question, how, how much are you investing into the kingdom now? How much, now that I'm going to go, is it important for you to invest in the kingdom and not be risk-averse? Now's not the time to be risk-averse. You need to invest. And in the very last statement, thing that he says to his disciples in this kind of time of, we're breathing out, we're on, the, we're on the Mount of Olives before I go back into the city again. The very last thing is this story of the sheep and the goats. The very last large story he tells his disciples before heading back to Jerusalem. And the story goes like this, that the Son of Man will come and, and the King will come and as he looks out, the nations, all the nations of the earth will be before him. This is the story. And the king will come and he will separate all the people before him into two groups. One group he'll put on his right, and I'm, I'm just doing this for, for effect, so don't, don't get the impression you're the good ones and they're the bad ones. But I just for, he says, on the right will be the sheep. And on the left will be the goats. And the question you'd be asking if you were in those, that story was be when the king does that, um, why am I left and why am I right? Why am I called a sheep? Why am I called a goat? And naturally that's what people are saying. So to the people on the right, he looks and says, you're the sheep. He calls them the sheep and he says this to them. He 
He says, to the sheep, he says, come you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. So come, come on the right, come on the the sheep, you're the ones who I've prepared the kingdom for forever. Come and take your inheritance, it's yours. You got it. And they would be wondering, like you might be wondering if you were in that group, what did I do to deserve this? What are the criteria you are using to say, I am on this path? What are the criteria you're using to say, I've, I've, I've gained, I've got the inheritance all before me and it's mine just to gather up? What are the criteria? And I don't know what you'd be thinking. But the king says very clearly, here's the criteria. I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was naked and cold and you gave me clothes to wear. I was a stranger and you welcomed me in and hosted me. I was sick and you tended me and I was in prison and you visited me. That's the criteria. That's it. And Jesus, if you like, was extending what had happened throughout the Old Testament whereby there was this group of people who the, the theologians called the quartet of the vulnerable. There was four groups of people right throughout the Old Testament. You read about it time and time and time again who are what theologians have called the quartet of the vulnerable. They are the widow, the orphan, the stranger and the poor. Let me read just one scripture that highlights that in comes from Zechariah, there's many, many more. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. That none of you plan evil in his heart. In other words, it's always been God's heart to protect those four groups of people who were the quartet of the vulnerable. And now it seems, as Jesus tells this story, at the end of his earthly existence, almost, he expands that out and says... You know, you saw me hungry and fed me and thirsty, etc., etc. And the question is, as this king stands before the people, the thing you've got to remember is, kings not normally hungry. It's not normal for a king to be hungry. A king can order whatever he wants to eat. It's not normal for a king to be thirsty. So you'd be puzzled if you heard him say that. Kings are not strangers, they're kings. Kings are not naked and unclothed, they wear fantastic clothing, they wear the best clothes there is. True kings get sick, but they have the best medical treatment you can have. Kings don't normally go to prison. So if you were listening to Jesus say that, you'd be thinking, a king says it, that's crazy. When do we see you say that? When did we see you in that position? When did we see you like that? And then the king says this. The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Whatever you did for one of the least, one of the most poor, one of the most needy, one of the most naked, one of the most sick, one of the most in prison, whatever you did for the least of one of these, you did it to me. And you'd go, wow, wow. 
you'd either go, well, I haven't really done that, or, gee, I didn't realise it was that important. And the people on the right will go, wow, I get the inheritance of Jesus because of that. And he looks, the story says, looks to the left, he says to those on the left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Man, that's, that's tough talk. Looks to the left and says, you guys over here, you, you, and I'm not again pointing to you, please understand that. I'll close my eyes. Uh, he says, you, you folk, um, you depart to the place where in the eternal fire where the devil and his angels have prepared. Wow. Wow. We're pretty faithful goats. We do goating pretty well. What, what, why would you say that to us, king? And he says, well, he said, assuredly I'll say to you as much as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. In other words, you saw me hungry, you didn't feed me. You saw me thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. You saw me unclothed or naked and cold and you gave me nothing to wear. You saw me as a stranger, you didn't welcome me in, you didn't host me, you, you saw me as sick and you couldn't care less, you saw me in prison and you just let me rot. Oh, when did we, when did we see you do that? We never saw you that way. Can't imagine a king ever being in that position. And he says, surely, inasmuch as you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do it to me. Wow. That's disturbing talk, extraordinary words of Jesus in his last hurrah with his disciples. You know, the criteria for you to follow on and to follow me is, is crucial. The criteria for that really matters. But that's the criteria. And he goes back into Jerusalem to face the music of that final week where he gets the adulation of the crowd as he rides in on a donkey, but very soon he gets the, you know, the the vilification of the crowd and the crucifixion and the injustice. This is the last story of that before that final week. This is the story of the sheep and the goats. What is it about this story that makes us disturbed? I just want to share a couple of thoughts about that, about what makes it disturbing, this story, what makes it disturbing to me. first one is this. Faith is more than just good theology. I love good theology. I love trying to explore what the scriptures say and how it means, what it means for me and what it means for the church and what it means for my family and all that sort of stuff. But it's not about theology alone. It's about theology and practice. It's about theology and expression of theology. It's about that. One of the tendencies, you know, when I first became a Christian in 40-something uh, years ago now, I was in the 70s, Anyone alive in the 70s? Not many. Um, in the, I remember when, when, when I first became a Christian, I didn't realise that I came from a non-church background, but I discovered soon there was a kind of a dichotomy in the church in general. I think it's got better in recent years, but there's a dichotomy between what people call the, the real gospel and the social gospel. There was this dichotomy. And to be honest, there was a certain pride amongst each of those groups. You know, there would be those, the pride of those who, 
you know, were very faithful to the scriptures and kind of looked down on those social Christians. And then there were those in this camp, if you like, who were very committed to, you know, to service and, and that and would look down on those heartless Christians who are just into the word. I think it's got better in recent times. I'm pretty sure it has, which is good. But it caused a polarisation and a pride in many churches between, oh, we're, we're the real gospel and you're not the real gospel. We're the real gospel and you missed this out. And, and so the first thing you learn from this story is that faith is not just about theology. It's about working it out and living it out in practice in very gutsy down-to-earth ways. Really, really important that we say that. I, a few years ago now, one of the leading theologians in our nation said this, and I'll get this right. He said, every dollar spent on the poor is a dollar not going to the gospel. You understand that? That's just prolonging that sort of um, thought of, well, this is the real gospel and this is the kind of social gospel when they're both together. Looking after the widow and the orphan, Old Testament terms, looking after the naked and the poor and the hungry, New Testament terms, has to go together with good thinking, good theology. It's important. Sometimes we just think to ourselves, if I just believe the right stuff, that's what Christianity is all about. No, it's not. Sure, it's about believing the right stuff, but it's about living that right stuff out. It's about making that right stuff count. It's about getting beyond ourselves and living the truth of the gospel out. You can have good theology and do absolutely nothing with it and think you're a wonderful Christian. It's, it's, it's faith and practice. It's theology and praxis. It's a way to life and the way of life together. That's the thing I would say about that. Eugene Peterson who wrote the message version of the Bible, the message paraphrase, wrote this. He said, what we know about God and what we do for God have a way of getting broken in our lives. The moment the organic unity of belief and behaviour is damaged in any way, we're incapable of living out the full humanity for which we're created. Once we get this faith and practice out of kilter, when it's broken in some way, we're in danger of never living out the life, the full humanity of the life God called us into. Of truth and action and life. Second thing I'd say about this is it's an act of worship. You will notice in that scripture, he doesn't say to the sheep on the one hand and then the goats on the other. He doesn't say, if you do it to the least of one of these, you do it for me. He says you do it to me. That's a huge difference. It's not just we, we act humanly, humanly, humanitarianly, and we do it for Jesus. No, no, no. He says you do it to me. And you think, how can I do that to a king? How can I provide that for a king? How can I even provide that for Jesus? How can I do it too? I've never seen Jesus hungry. I've never seen the king thirsty. So how can I do it to you? It's because it's an act of worship. 
It's not just an act of service. It's an act of service to brothers and sisters, but it's an act of worship to God. If you do it to the least of these, you do it to me. And if you don't do it to the least of me, these, you do not do it to me, not for me. Reaching out in practical faith and life and truth is, uh, is an act of worship. It's a surrender. God, this is, this is a gift to you. As I feed someone, as I give someone a drink, if I, as I clothe someone, as I welcome a stranger in, it's an act of worship to you. I know it's an act of service to them, but it's every bit an act of worship as when we come to church on Sunday morning. It's an act of worship. We do it to you. That's how God sees it. That's disturbing because we like to think there's an option. We can do it for him or not do it for him. No, we can do it to him. This is disturbing because it's an act of worship. When you do that, when you give food to the hungry, when you visit the person in prison, when you tend the sick, it's an act of worship to Jesus. Not for him, but to him. It's an extraordinary thought when you think about it. And the last thing I'd say about this, um, what disturbs me, is that it's, it's about following Jesus. It, it really is simple. It's about following Jesus the way he lived and who he was. Um, I don't know how many of you are in a small group. You might be in a small group. Um, maybe you meet on a Wednesday night or a Tuesday morning or whatever it is. Um, just imagine you're in your small group. I don't know how many are there, ten dozen maybe. In a small group, one day, just as you're meeting normally, Jesus walks into your small group. Just imagine. You don't expect him. You're around a circle in the lounge room and he walks in the back door and comes in to your small group. Be, be, be strange. You'd be, if you're reading your Bible and he says he wants to read the Bible, you would be falling over ourselves about, hey, read my Bible. No, read my Bible. We'd be falling over ourselves to give him my Bible. One day he did go into a small group just like that. Small group, big small group called a synagogue. Synagogue were groups of people, about 10 families normally, who met together and formed a synagogue. And synagogues developed when the people of God were, were sort of put in exile so that they, would, they couldn't worship in the temple anymore, they couldn't be there. So to make sure they still kept their faith and sang songs together and told stories together and prayed together, they formed in exile little things called synagogues about 10 families who would meet together and continue in their faith. And when they came back into Israel again, synagogues continued. There was one in Jesus' hometown. It was in the hometown of Nazareth. And one day, unexpectedly, Jesus walks in to this big, small group. And he wants to read the scriptures. And so they hand him the Bible, which was a scroll of the prophet Isaiah. It's the story of, the, of Isaiah in a scroll. And so Jesus reads from the scroll. Now here's the question I ask for you. Um, no one told him where to read from. It wasn't a lectionary. You know, no one said that next week we're preaching in the synagogue on whatever. No one told him where to read from or where to look at it. So it's just a big scroll, no numbers on it. We put the numbers on later. But if I was Jesus and I was just given the freedom to, to, to uh, read from anywhere, and this is early on and pretty early in his ministry, 
I would have gone to maybe what we know now as Isaiah 11. It wasn't Isaiah 11 to him, but I'd have opened it up to them and said, I'll read there, you know, from the, from the root of Jesse comes someone who will have on him the spirit of might and the spirit of power and the spirit of wisdom and the spirit of understanding. And I'd have read that and as Jesus thumped my breast and go, guys, that's me. Or maybe I'd have read a little bit later on in Isaiah. We know it, Isaiah 43. It says things like, you know, I've redeemed you, I've called you by name, child, you are mine. When you walk through the waters, I'll be with you, you won't drown. When you go through the fire, you won't be burned, I'm with you. And I might have said, and Jesus, if I was Jesus, I might have said, well, hey guys, that's me. You see how much I'm, I'm looking after you? Or I'd have read a little bit later on in that same chapter that we know of, you know, forget the former things, do not dwell on the past. See, I'm raising, I'm doing a new thing. Do you not perceive it? It's like an oasis in the wilderness. It's like a vision statement. And if I had a Jesus, I'd have probably said, guys, let's link arms and take the hill. We can do this together. He doesn't read any of those places. He goes a bit further on towards the end of the scroll and just reads two verses of what we know as two verses that are again repeated in Luke chapter, chapter 4. And he reads these verses. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Then he rolls up the scroll, gives it back and sits down. And if, if you and I were there, be nudging each other going, is that all he's got to say? Is he only going to read two verses? This is Jesus. Is he only going to read two verses and then close it up and give it back? And it's almost as if Jesus understands what people are thinking. And so he stands up again and says, simply this, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, which means this. That's what I'm about. That's what I'm, I'm, I'm about the person who's bringing good news to the poor, recovery of sight for the blind, freedom for the oppressed. And by implication, if you're going to follow me, you better be about the same things. You better be about the same things. It's not just, it's not just words on a page. It's not just sermons in a church. It's not just podcasts. We better be about doing it. He's annoying me to bring good news to the poor. Recovery of sight of the blind, freedom from the oppressed, release to those who are captive. So he's taken on the same theme. This is disturbing. Disturbing. This is, you see, the thing about what Jesus says to the sheep and the goats is this you cannot read that and feel great at just knowing stuff. It doesn't allow you to be someone who's just a theological Christian. It causes you to be someone who's got the full orb of truth and life, gift, generosity, freedom, commitment, discomfort, be provoked. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. That's, to me, a story that disturbs. I'm disturbed when I read that story. Every time I read it, I've read it many times, and you probably have too, I'm disturbed every time I read that story because of the seriousness and the, the kind of severity and the gravity of what Jesus says about it.
And I want to encourage you as I encourage myself and not on any guilt, but just in terms of provocation. Tim, do you, do you know what it means to really follow Jesus? It means to trust him. It means to come to life and come to eternity, come to trust, come to forgiveness. But it means to live that out in the lives of others, in the, in, in the kingdom of God. And that's how the kingdom is built. It's a story that provokes. I hope it provokes you. It provokes me. It does indeed. And it should do. Because it's the truth of Jesus in this last piece of his final hurrah, if you like, with his disciples before getting into the craziness of the week to come. It's a story that disturbs. Let me pray with you. Father, I want to thank you and praise you for your gift of life. I want to thank you so much, Jesus, that you are called the way and you are the way to life. But as we come and discover that way to life, we have the responsibility to live a way of life that reflects that. And we can't just go, well, that's good for us. That's great for us. But you cause us to be people who are looking out for the lost and the broken and the poor and the stranger and the sick and the incarcerated and all of those things and the thirsty and the hungry. God, would you please provoke us through the words of your son Jesus to be people who live out our faith in truth and in practice. In Jesus' name we pray.